Dare Georgia HFMA listeners, it's season two. What a whirlwind of a year. We had some absolute rock stars that we had the pleasure of interviewing in season one, and we waited a long time, like Game of Thrones long transitioning to season two, but it was worth the wait. You're going to love listening to today's episode with a total celebrity in healthcare and a passionate human who has devoted her career not only to treating humans, but to figuring out how to fix physician burnout. This is going to be a treat, you guys. Put on your AirPods and enjoy. Dr. Shaw is a national policy expert and senior healthcare executive with a passion for workplace well-being and a track record of building successful care models. She recently served as senior advisor to the U.S. Surgeon General, where she developed the nation's first strategy to address burnout and the great resignation among the U.S. health workforce. She also served in the White House over two administrations where she oversaw initiatives to improve veteran access to quality care. And currently, Dr. Shaw continues to practice as a pulmonary critical physician. While at Wellstar, where I got to meet Dr. Shaw, uh, she served as our medical director of practice improvement and virtual health. Dr. Shaw, I cannot tell you how privileged we are to have you on this podcast. Thanks, Adam. It's great to be here with you. So today's podcast is really about How do you do it all from Wellstar to the 2000 things uh, you're now involved in? Um, By the end of the podcast, the audience, uh, I hope, would have a better sense of your leadership style, how you manage to be a successful influencer to get things done, especially from folks not in your department, such as myself, um, or directly reporting to you, again, like myself, um, and how you sort of navigated a large organization's politics to accomplish uh, key initiatives doing a, a pandemic at the time in Wellstar, and then since then, uh, many other um, important initiatives that you've worked on. So most important, uh, and just maybe selfishly for myself, I just want to know how you, with a, a physician that is working tirelessly to help reduce physician burnout in whatever setting that you're, you're, you have and whatever forum you have to express um, your thoughts, ideas, and, and consulting advice around how physicians can, how we can help, how we can all help, not just physicians, but how we can all help reduce physician burnout. How you, in caps, actually don't become burned out with everything that's going on uh, in your life. So I'm particularly curious about that myself. But we've got to start somewhere. So, sure. uh, <laughs> so why do you think your work to quickly and just historically ramp up? virtual health and virtual visits at a large health system in Georgia, such as Wellstar, during COVID was so successful given all the headwinds that you had to deal with. Adam, I, I think it I think it was my radio voice. I mean, can you hear it? It just it just tells people to do things. <laughs> Makes I'm <sense> just joking. <laughs> this was really well, I, I'll just say this. Everyone has such a unique story about how COVID especially in the beginning, impacted them and their family. And on the professional sense, I think it was a combination of factors, but some of the typical bureaucracy that we have quickly went away. And I'm sure you felt it in your area of healthcare. I sure felt it on the front lines in the ICU. And that was the stage that was set. And thank God we had that. Here's what how I would describe, and I'm curious, Adam, to hear your interpretation or memory of how, how things went. But like everyone else, we had a tiny bit of leeway because we were in Georgia, right? And we were watching what was happening in the Northeast. 
And quickly thereafter, we all of a sudden needed to close our clinics, but then still keep our doors open. And so the answer really was virtual care. The first thing I remember doing is putting my doctor hat on and saying, okay, well, how do you actually implement something? And from my perspective, it was, what what's the actual modality? What do I need to drop in the note? How do I turn the tech on? And what what is the billing aspect to it? What's the code I need to drop? And so that's kind of where my mind started. And that led to what I like to call the Wellstar Brain Trust, of which you were a key integral member, but it was forming this group very quickly. It had a clinical leader that was myself, revenue cycle leader that was you, Adam, an IT leader, and this one is really critical. Importantly, somebody from compliance, because this is all. these are the key ingredients to make something move very fast. At the same time, I'll say we all of these different verticals struggle to actually work together. I mean, you're so busy in your own lane. I, I'm sure you can attest to this, but I really can't say I had known um, our, our person, Rebecca Butler, very well from compliance up until we started this work together. So form the brain trust. And that really was the first step. Um, Adam, do you want me to give away trade secrets? I mean, I'm happy to do it, but do you want me to? <laughs> you can give away any trade secrets, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So in, in a matter of, I think, days, if you go back and remember what happened in March, the federal government basically said we Medicare is going to be reimbursing for virtual care. And so that was really the opening. And also, they weren't going to enforce... Um, as strictly some of the regulations so we could actually use regular video video technology like FaceTime or Facebook Messenger to connect with our patients. So HIPAA wasn't going to be enforced as much. And that really was a linchpin for the work we did together at Wellstar. And so here's, here's how we did it. And I think that acronym K-I-S-S, keep it simple, stupid, really comes, really, I think, explains what we did. The first was, what what need to know info do doctors need? Since doctors were sort of at the top for executing these ambulatory virtual care visits. And that manifested literally in a three by three table. One column was, what's a type of visit? Is it a secure patient portal message? Is it an audio visit? Is it a virtual a video visit that is audio and video? The second column was, what are the three things that the doc needs to write in the note? And then the last one was, what's the one CPT code? And here's where I just have to say thank you so much, Adam, to you and your team, because if you recall, prior to that, I'll just say all my all my doctor friends were proudly boasting that they had memorized tomes and tomes of CPT codes <laughs> related to the different insurers, right? <laughs> but... Um, I think this was it. One, number one was need to know info for docs. And we published a CPT grid that I personally updated after talking with you and talking with compliance several times a week. And that was actually a link off of the opening page of the EMR. And we, we use Epic, right, at Wellstar. The second was simplifying the billing. And this is where I just, I think this is one of the things that will help us address burnout, by the way, and not just for doctors, for the entire care team. And it comes down to why are we asking some of the folks that granted are smart, but are the least read in on how to do billing to memorize all these codes and be at the front lines of billing. And those are our clinicians. 
So number step number two in Keep It Simple Stupid was simplifying the billing. And as you'll recall, we figured out a way to have just one code for the physician. Let's And I understand, for example, audio visits, different codes for the different times of how long your visit is. But instead of ha- having five different codes because there are five different payers, we had one. And on the back end, it was actually adjusted and that was not part of the physician's duty. So I think that made it really simple. The third thing, and this is uh, something that I think takes courage and really takes a lot of leadership buy-in, was that we set explicit goals of what we intend to do as a medical group. And in this case, we had set different goals as the weeks were going on for how many virtual visits we wanted to do, even getting to when we finally got to steady state and we opened our clinics back up saying that we want at least a certain percent. And at that time we were hovering around 20-30% to continue on for virtual visits when clinically indicated. So we set explicit goals and that was number three. And tied to that was public reporting. And that's, I I put public in quotes. So essentially we all were using Microsoft Office and we had created a Teams channel and had enrolled every single physician and advanced practice provider that does, uh, does ambulatory care and inpatient work and we were, and thank you again, Adam, to your team, but we were actually updating every single day how many visits that they had billed. So pulling from the CPT codes, how many video visits and telephone visits each person had done. So we kind of built off of the fact that doctors and others by nature are competitive beings and would look and see, hey, what is my partner doing? Oh, my partner did 20 video visits today. Well, obviously I can do that too. And I think that really helped And then getting to number four was communication. So at that time, like many health systems, we were having these weekly calls where any clinician could dial in as um, alongside others, including uh, office leaders, other types of managers. And so we would get virtual care updates. We've done this many visits, want to give a shout out to this doctor or this care team, this um, office manager that has really gone above and beyond and also to communicate what's coming up ahead. Hey, there is now continuing medical education dollars so you can purchase hardware to help you with your virtual care and so forth. And then last but not least, this one was a biggie and it was humility. And I'll just tell you, like many other health systems, we were completely just baffled by the fact that we just could not purchase tablets, could not purchase webcams, but everyone needed it, right? And so we had to go in there to our clinical staff and our doctors to say, we know it's not okay that we're not giving you the best technology. Do the best you can. You're going to tell us problems. We're going to help you solve it. We're going to take your solutions and tell everyone else about it. And I think those six things, starting with the formation of the Brain Trust, is what helped us get from zero to 50,000 build virtual visits in the first six weeks of the pandemic in Georgia. I love it. I I think the best part of this experience is that your lessons learned are applicable to any successful project rollout, not just uh, virtual health um, and a large health system in a critical time. I, I, I agree with all of it, Dr. Sean. I, my perspective, to be honest, is that you were, and not to be cliched because I'm a huge Apple fan, an Apple fanboy, but you were the Steve Jobs of virtual health at Wells Fargo. You pushed boundaries, and we as a system got great results as a result of it. 
The key was that you took the time to learn the end user's perspective in every step. Steve was always about the end user at every point. You were the clinical end user from a clicks perspective. You were the administrative end user from a scheduling perspective all the way to backend revenue cycle. Just, I just want to say thank you on that. And it's, it's so funny because I think to me the biggest eye-opening and one of the one of the things that I really remember, in addition to understanding the revenue cycle more, but it really was building this relationship with our compliance folks um, to the point where, of course, I'm asking, hey, how was the wedding? Like, you know, how are your grandchildren doing? As we always do in Georgia. But um, in addition to truly caring about the person, I then understood why it is that as a doctor, I kept getting these messages and literally I understand now why compliance truly is the white knights. And I can argue for, for this audience too, you're doing everything you can to help us doctors and others get credit for what we're doing and then not get hurt or sued or, or anything else that you know could be of consequence happen to us as we're trying to serve our patients. That I just wish those connections would happen more often. And I was lucky to get a glimpse into your world. I believe you all got a little bit of a glimpse into our world as we felt the pain every day on the floors. And man, maybe that's the secret sauce. Is there is there a way to do a, a shadow your revenue cycle leader and a shadow your doctor? Because I think we should do it. Oh, I think that's I think that would solve a lot of issues. Um, no, that's, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's a great point. Great point. Absolutely. And especially for this audience, that's that's the relationship. If you can get a physician champion, a compliance champion, a rev cycle champion that's all willing to work together and get on get around the table and discuss things, whew, I think that's the solution. Um, speaking of just, you know, keeping yourself busy like you did uh, rolling out virtual health at Wellstar during a pandemic. Um, we all know, just hearing from your experience, Dr. Shell, that you like to keep yourself busy. Uh, after Wellstar, can you give the audience a glimpse into, you know, just kind of like we see teasers in, on HBO for House of Dragons. Give us a, a teaser <laughs> as to uh, what, what you've took on since then. Sure. I think one of the biggest things was that I acknowledged that I'm not just a doctor, I'm a human. And at that time, I think many of us in the country, probably across the globe, were thinking, what's what should we really be spending our time on in the in the life that we have left on Earth? One of the biggest things for me was realizing I am too far away from my family. And as you know now, I'm sitting here talking to you from New Jersey, which is where I grew up and where all of my family is. That was the biggest move for me. As far as what have I been doing since Wellstar, the biggest decision point I, or decision I made was it's time, it's time to prioritize the whole life, not just the work life. And so I was making my way up to New Jersey and trying to, again, plant roots in a place that I grew up in, establish myself professionally and so forth. On the way there though, some interesting stuff happened. And I think this is what you were alluding to, Adam. One was I had this feeling like, you know, it's probably not okay to be a critical care doctor and sit this one out. I mean, we're like in, a, in the middle of a pandemic. I actually like my job. I really do love working in the ICU. And so I was, I was trying to find good places to volunteer or maybe work as a contract doc in a place where that was really surging. And this incredible opportunity popped up, which was, I think, going to be one of the things that I'll consider foundational for the rest of my professional career, in that I then became a subcontractor 
and oversaw a program across the Indian Health Service. So this is the collection of hospitals that serve indigenous people that are located on tribal lands across the U.S. And it is a division of health and human services. So it is a government-run uh, healthcare system for indigenous people. And what I did then was sometimes as the doc and sometimes as the medical director, I helped really ramp these hospitals up in terms of their ability to do critical care and keep people alive because folks were coming in sick, the hospitals that normally would help take really sick patients were already full up. And so we had this crash course in critical care. So there was one doc, one respiratory therapist, and one critical care nurse. And we would deploy out, we would do these crash courses in quality improvement, in literally bedside training. What are the types of critical care meds you need to take care of someone that can't breathe, that has COVID? How do you handle low oxygens? Um, even started talking about some telemedicine. I'll tell you one time I went to a place and this hospital served such a wide catchment area. They served a indigenous tribe that was located in the Grand Canyon. And it was something like two hours by foot or, or something like seven hours by foot, two hours by mule going down into the basin, or you could take a helicopter, but there was no easy way way and so we were talking about how do you serve a community that is literally geographically inaccessible and that's really what I did for a good bit of the pandemic and then I intended to go into where I call the bleeding edge of innovation the startup world and thinking about new places that are trying to operate with with care models that defragment care that feel really good for clinicians and for patients and had actually signed on the dotted line for a startup and then I got a call from the Surgeon General and it shifted my my trajectory again. <laughs> I guess that's the story of my life. <laughs> yeah, no joke. I, you know, after leaving Wall Street, you continue to add to your toolkit in terms of compounding experience after experience all of the purpose of just like you mentioned with IHS, Indian Health Services, improving patient access, serving the community. Can you dive in a little bit more into how, you know, all of these experiences then led to a stint with the Surgeon General for a little bit? I think that's really interesting. and The audience would love to hear that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I was really fortunate. So when I finished my medical training and I had eight years after my MD, I then went into a very unique role in the federal government and it was through this program called the White House Fellowship. So I was selected by President Obama and actually worked for Obama and for President Trump. And this was a program for mid-career professionals and my boss was a, was a cabinet secretary. In fact, my day-to-day -day boss was the Secretary of Veterans Affairs. Now that gave me crazy understanding of how the federal government worked. And I bring this up, although that was in 16 and 17, but when I left Wellstar, I was thinking, where are some of the most underserved, um, resource-strapped areas in the country? And it made me think of Indian Health Ser uh, Service. And so that's one of the reasons I went there. Overall, though, since I left the White House and even further behind that, halfway through my training, I got burnt out. And so it's led me on this more than a decade now journey of how how do we stop burnout? And I know it's not a, just a clinician thing. I'm sure the majority of folks listening to this podcast right now have been or continue to be burned out. So this is a ubiquitous problem in healthcare and elsewhere, except we have these critical consequences of hurting patients when we're burnt out. 
despite our best efforts. And I think some of the work that I had started while I was in the White House, especially with looking at um, clinicians that worked in veterans affairs and served veterans, and then even at Wellstar and thinking about, okay, we're in a pandemic, how do we implement change, big change by doing virtual care, but not burn out our docs, because guess what, we don't have that many, and not burn out our nurses and our APPs and so forth. So I've always kind of had that in my mind, um, but I think it sort of felt like the culmination because I had done this policy work, then I was so fortunate to be on the front lines and an operational leader in Wellstar. And then I think through existing relationships, when I spoke again to the Surgeon General, who by the way, it's a second time around, so we had worked together the first time at the end of the Obama administration, it became really clear. And what he actually said, and it's just, I'm just so proud to call him a friend too. He's a he's an internist, Dr. Vivek Murthy. He said, hey, burnout's a big problem. It's a big problem in healthcare. I want to do something about it. I want to make it a public health issue and a national priority. And as soon as he said that, um, I, I was actually driving in my car. I had pulled over to the side because if the Surgeon General calls you, you don't keep driving. You have to pull over, right? Um, <laughs> so I had, I pulled over to the side. I'm like, oh my gosh, the Surgeon General is calling. This is crazy. My mom was actually in the car with me, ironically, at this time. I only say this because later, I think he was, he might have been, might have sensed some hesitation in my voice. I mean, I had just, I had just gone on the dotted line for another job. And then he talked to my mom and he was saying some, some wonderful things about me. And then I just said, all right, well, I'm working for the Surgeon General. I don't even need to know what the job is. Like, let's just start. It was the it was like the opportunity of a lifetime after being burnt out and really looking for an exit and thinking I could never work as a doctor to doing policy work to doing work at Wellstar in a health system and now getting this opportunity to come up with the nation's strategy for addressing burnout and that really is code word for setting the stage for completely trans transforming how we do healthcare in the U.S. I love it. I, that sounded like a cinematic teaser right there. I, we, I, I, want, I want the group, I want the audience to really sort of stalk you on LinkedIn and, and see all of your posts on physician burnout because they're so relevant. But just as a teaser, do you see any glimmers that we would actually be able to address this top concern across the country? I really do. And I'm selfish because if I don't, then... I'm just worried one day one day I'm really going to need care. I'm watching my family members and we we need our healers to be well because we need them to to then be there for us when we are sick. So yes, and I'm so happy to say Adam, there are tactical things out there. So, let me just run through a couple of things. One, I actually worked with a bunch of other thought leaders in this space and earlier this year in January, we came up with the 2022 Healthcare Workforce Rescue Package, AKA the Wellbeing Five. These are five evidence-based tactics that hospitals can implement now, that is not with additional resources, knowing that everyone is cash strapped and doesn't, and there isn't enough, there aren't enough people in every single department, but things that can be done now and actually have impact on 
reducing burnout within three months. So I like to call that in, in quotation marks, clinically significant impact because it will be f- felt by our nurses and our doctors and our therapists and so forth. So I'm happy to share you the link and I hope everyone looks at that. Overall, I will say burnout is an occupational condition. It literally is due to a mismatch between the job demands and the job resources. So this is not a resiliency issue. Although doing resiliency things, building out your toolkit, meditating, taking care of yourself, eating, sleeping right, and there's so many more help, but it's actually insufficient given the problems about the workplace. So I like to think that 85% of the problem and thus the solution needs to be focused on system level things, that is changing internal policies and thinking about the hospital system itself or the clinic system itself rather than I'm going to just provide uh, access to a meditation app or I'm going to go ahead and put a wellness room in. I, w- I wish I wish it was that simple, but truth be told, none of us have time to go to the wellness room. So it's really about widespread system change. And for those that are leaders or are de facto leaders or are soon to become leaders, this is about thinking, what is something that is a pain in your side? What part of your workflow is just inefficient and clunky and doesn't let you do the job that you train to do and then tackling it? That's actually one simple way to think about burnout. Burnout is really when the workplace does not serve us, whether it's about tech, poor workflows, not the most optimal relationships with our supervisors, and a lack of recognition. So there's so much we can do. And um, to just give you one soundbite, I really refer you to this top five list of what five tactics health systems can take now. And one of them, I think, that would really identify with this audience is getting rid of stupid stuff. So on the clinician side, we are documenting all sorts of things that are just maybe out of date, maybe over over interpretations of regs. And I suspect in the revenue cycle world, there's a full laundry list that you can identify. And that's it. Make the list, work on it as a group, figure out what can be done, keep reporting back, figure out what can't, but report back as to why not, and then just keep moving forward. I love it. We in Revenue Cycle call getting rid of stupid stuff denials. Um, but no, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> but thank you, though, for taking time to give us some ways to really help folks in our clinicians and cannot wait to hear and see more of all the great work you do around physician burnout. We'll be looking uh, more out for that. But besides winning the Oscars and Emmys next year, um, I am sure the audience wants to know what else is next for Dr. Shah. Do you want to give the audience some insight um, into your exciting happenings? I mean, I feel like we're like a reality show and we're all just super (laughs) engaged in watching this, the new Netflix series. I plan on binge watching Netflix for hours and hours. That's my next (laughs) career step, Adam. Thank you for asking. (laughs) I love it. I love it. I mean, you know, no... It, not to give props to Netflix, Amazon Prime's fine too. I probably go between the both, <laughs> but um, that's a great question. I'll, I'll just tell you. So now that I've wrapped up, and it's, it's been a few months since taking that pause and jumping head in into back into the federal government, I've kind of gone back to basics. So I have I have um, rediscovered the joy of working on the front lines, and I still work in the ICU every month and. It's been pretty amazing. I think I for, 
you forget sometimes, but you get to see, you get to jump into people's lives when they're in their most vulnerable state, and then you get to help. And when I think about what's happening in my personal life, you know, I woke up on the wrong side of bed, like, oh my God, I got, got another bill, thinking about all these little things. Every time I work in the ICU, all of that falls away because I'm so filled with satisfaction and even joy that I got to help someone. So that's been pretty amazing, returning back to the ICU. Um, the second thing I've been up to is just trying to continue the, the good works kicking off um, at the Surgeon General's office. And I think I didn't mention this, but one of the biggest things that came out of um, my work there, my time there as senior advisor, is helping the office craft and then publish a national, a Surgeon General's advisory on health worker burnout. This is a 70-some page document that is the blueprint of how we are going to redesign healthcare so that our healers can stay healthy and then take care of us. And it's a breakdown. It says, what should health systems do? What should regulators do? What should the tech industry do? What should the payers do? And there's a few other key stakeholders noted in there too. So now I'm actually faculty for the Institute of Healthcare Improvement, continuing on in that vein of executing the blueprint and helping to oversee one of the large federal grants, it's over 100 million bucks, that was actually dispersed to 44 institutions. These are training institutions like nursing schools to health systems to um, professional societies like the, um, the hospital pharmacy societies. And it's helping guide these folks that are the change makers in implementing system level and sometimes individual level tactics that really will address burnout. And then big picture, Adam, there's, I, I know my North Star. My North Star is I want to empower as many people as possible. My favorite people are those that work in healthcare selfishly because I do too. And when we let docs just be docs and let social workers just be social workers, crazy good things happen. And so I'm going to continue on that vein and now starting to look at that intersection of empowering people and addressing burnout and leveraging technology and how do we do that. So I've been really branching into the investor world, the startup world, and all I would say is maybe you should follow me on LinkedIn because it's a TBD.